The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, what's on my mind, on my heart a bit, is a, might seem initially maybe a little bit of an interesting topic. I hope I can make it interesting. And, um, and that is the, the uh, uh, sixth factor of the Eightfold Path, which is right effort. And um, maybe one thing that will kind of maybe pique your interest around this topic of right effort is the first time uh, many years ago, over 25 years ago, that I gave a series of talks on the Eightfold Path, one of the most important teachings of the Buddha. And I did it, you know, I was going to do it one factor for every evening. And so I was going through the factors. And then it was time to do the uh, factor on right effort. And I, without any comment or explanation or recognition that I was doing it, I consciously skipped it. <laughs> and no, no one asked me, why did you skip it? And... Uh, and um, the reason I skipped it was I, could, I wasn't really behind it. I couldn't quite get myself inspired by it. And some of it had to do with my background in Zen, where in Zen there was really clear teaching, admonition, to not do any, not strive, not have any goal orientation, not try to make anything happen, not try to attain particular states of meditation. Rather, the instruction was to wholeheartedly, fully be present for what is. And, um, and so, so uh, there was a lot of physical effort that went into, into Zen. You had to show up early in the morning in the monastery, like at four o'clock in the morning, you had to wake it up and to get up to do no effort at all. <laughs> and then you had to uh, take a very particular posture, sit very straight and upright. There's a lot of effort that goes into the posture. And, um, and then they ring the bell, and then you have to do a walking meditation, they ring the bell, you have to come back to take this posture to do nothing in. And um, so there's kind of nothing you do, but kind of a lot you do. There's a lot of effort. And in fact, when I was practicing in the monastery in Japan, um, I was admonished when I didn't make enough effort. And they would say in Japan, I had to do things with Zen no Chikara. And that means uh, with Zen power. So, so it was a little bit, you know, kind of how I learned Zen and how I understood it was very pe- peculiar maybe to myself. But, um, but it, it was clearly not striving, not goal-oriented, and not trying to make anything happen. Just, and I loved Zen, and I, I put a lot of... In retrospect, I realized I put a lot of effort into it. But it was kind of like the effort to show up, but the mind wasn't trying to do anything. It was almost like it was a physical effort to show up for the present. And uh, physical was very important for me because I, a lot of it was the embodied awareness that came in the embodied showing up. And the mind was just trying to be present, but nothing else, so no effort there. So that's how I defend myself a little bit, or explain myself a little bit for skipping right effort. But um, at some point I started appreciating, as I kept studying the Eightfold Path and looking at right effort, and appreciating that actually I'd put a lot of effort into it. 
And, uh, and I love the effort I made. And uh, even when I went to uh, Burma to practice Vipassana there, uh, there too the teacher made uh, teachings about you should strive. And some people really did themselves in, really suffered a lot because maybe with a kind of Western acculturation, striving meant uh, stressing. And so people would stress at meditation, which was not healthy. And there were people who were kind of basket cases from that approach. But because I came from the Zen background, when I heard strive, I mostly just shrugged it off. And then I did that anyway. (laughs) Uh, In retrospect, uh, I wasn't striving to attain anything. But again, once again, I was really trying to wholeheartedly show up and be present for what is, which was the instructions. And in the background, it was for attaining something. But I wasn't there exactly to attain something. I was there to show up fully. And it was really wonderful for me, the very detailed, precise instructions that I received in Burma in Vipassana for doing this Zen thing, (laughs) show up really precisely for the moment. But in doing that, it set in motion an unfolding, a growth, a development in practice um, that led to some of the states that they're pointing to, what you can attain. But it wasn't like attaining it wasn't the point for me. It was kind of a byproduct. So I felt I felt very lucky to have had this background in Zen when I practiced with this fierce uh, teacher Upadita in uh, Burma, because I was protected in a way that a lot of other Vipassana students were not protected from the striving element that he had. And um, so, uh, so it took a while for me to get my handle on this uh, Theravadan early Buddhist kind of idea of right effort. So to give you, maybe, maybe to kind of, you can appreciate a little bit more the challenge I had to get behind it. Um, so right effort is made up of uh, four different kind of practices or efforts. And whether we should call it effort or endeavor, some people translate it for endeavors, the right endeavor. And maybe that feels a little bit more relaxing. I don't know. But um, it has to do with... Um, uh, recognizing the distinction between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind. Unwholesome states of mind are reactive qualities of the mind. When we react uh, uh, compulsively, addictively to experience with anger, with greed, with hostility, with delusion, with fear, uh, uh, the unwholesome states of mind always uh, contain some degree of suffering, of pain in them. And that's what qualifies them as, as um, unwholesome is they are detrimental to the person who has them. So, uh, so if you have anger which is not detrimental to you, then it wouldn't be considered unwholesome. But the, that's the definition of it in this tradition. So you have to be able to recognize what's unwholesome, what's stressful, what's detrimental. And then there's what's wholesome, which is healthy and beneficial for the person who has it. And um, these are mental states, activities of the mind that we do. And so uh, if there is an impulse for generosity that has no conceit or no greed or no ill will in it, then it's wholesome. But if it's mixed with these unwholesome ones, it kind of makes the generosity unwholesome as well. So to be able to be generous, to be loving, kind, uh, these are all kind of just part of many, many wholesome states of mind that we can have. 
So that's the distinction in right effort. And um, there's uh, uh, two, two uh, practices of, that avoid um, uh, uh, unwholesome states of mind and two for wholesome. The unwholesome has to do uh, with, um, first, if there's nothing unwholesome, if you're not being in a reactive mode, not caught up in unwholesome states, then uh, prevent them from coming occurring. <laughs> so do what you can so they don't arise. If, if they have arise, then abandon them, let go of them. So the same distinction happens for wholesome. Uh, uh, if there are wholesome states that haven't arisen, evoke them. If they've arisen, if they're there, then maintain them. So that's the kind of the simple explanation for it. But in each of these four steps, um, uh, this is what you're supposed to do. And it's, it's uh, repeated for each one. Um, you should make effort, arouse energy, exert your mind, and strive <laughs> to do each of those. So maybe now you can sympathize a little bit for my skipping right effort <laughs> in my talk. You're like, what? I mean, this is a little bit strong, right? Now, whether the English translation is accurate is, uh, you know, you've always questioned, like, the word strive, is that really the right thing? But anyway, that's, you know, just four words, you know, for, for doing this. So, what, but when four words are being used like this, um, what it does indicate is that for the Buddha, making some kind of effort is super important. This isn't, he has, this, the Dharma is not for lazy people. The, the Dharma is not like, you know, to be easygoing, I'll get around to it eventually, and, you know, then I'll, get, I'll do some of it. Um, and in particular for meditation, you know, to sit down in meditation, well, I'm sit here for a while, but I'll get around to being present, you know, maybe near the end, you know. You know, I have some good, I have some good fantasies I have to get through first. They're, they're mostly reruns, but still I want to, I, I want to go through them. And, um, but the idea, I love the word, word wholehearted. And for me, the summary of all these powerful expressions here is do your practice wholeheartedly. Do it wholly. Put yourself completely into it. But don't, don't stress. And then, and, uh, and I'll talk about that some more about this, but don't do it wholeheartedly. The Buddha really wants you, don't be lazy, be wholehearted, give yourself to it. Give yourself, if you're going to practice, give yourself over to it when you're practicing. So like meditation, there's a peaceful way of giving yourself over to it. A way, a peaceful way that it doesn't cause more stress or tension. A wholehearted way that actually, because the nature of the practice supports de-stressing letting go, relaxing tension. So, um, so uh, in, in sometimes, sometimes these four right efforts are summarized by the four words. Um, prevent, abandon, evoke, and maintain. That's nice. Nice thing to remember, maybe. But, it's, uh, but if you, then if you look at the instructions a little bit more carefully... There's a, I find this is fascinating, and this is what I kind of came to realize the last few weeks, and, um, as I've been kind of seeing the teachings of the Buddha from a new slant, the things that I overlooked before. 
And um, so sure enough, it says, um, for unwholesome states that haven't arisen, prevent them from arising. And for ones that have arisen, abandon them. Just So each one of them has just one word. But... Um, 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 and for um, for um, for evoking wholesome states that have not yet arisen, it just says evoke them, bring them about, bring them up somehow. It's just one word. But this is what I find fascinating: is the fourth one. Uh, there are uh, five words to describe what you do here. Not just maintain. So in this translation, uh, it's um, continue, um, uh, make the effort for the continuance, the non-disappearance, the strengthening, the increase, and the fulfillment by development, by cultivation of those wholesome states that are, that are present. That's a lot of words. So the other word, other, I have just one word, but this has a, so there's a kind of like, wow. Now, if you're chanting this, in the ancient world, people chanted this, it has a rhythm to it, it has a heartfelt, it has an embodied feeling to it, that I think has a, my guess is in the ancient world, it had a very different impact on people who sit down to read this and start falling asleep because of these words and the rep- repetition. I mean, these, a lot of this tech, these ancient texts are not very engaging to read, if you're a no, if you're a novice, but um, but if you're chanting it and you get the rhythm of the language and you're being carried along by the rhythm, I can imagine that this language of um, it kind of almost suggests energy, suggests kind of a embodied feeling of kind of excitement or and then if you chanted it a number of times and you heard it a number of times and you can it's like a refrain and you can get behind it and chant it yourself. There's something that happens in chanting and communal chanting that uh, there's a concentration and a vo- vocation, a deeper resonance inside of us for what's being talked about. So uh, one awakens effort uh, uh, for the continuance, for the continuance, the non-disappearance, the strengthening, the increase, the fulfillment by cultivation so by cultivate, so anyway, I don't know if this, you get a sense of this rhythm and the energy behind it and how it might be conveyed in the ancient way, in the way that this was originally meant to be presented. But what strikes me is that uh, a couple of things is um, I think it's fair to say that uh, this Buddhism thing that we do is often associated with letting go. Isn't it kind of? Like non-attachment, and you have to, like you go to a, you know, a block party, and people, you know, <laughs> kind of like you Buddhist, you're doing Buddhist practice, and you know that's like kind of party pooping, you know, it's just it's just about letting go, and you know, it's about letting go and non-attachment. This non-attachment is overdone, and you know, my my wife when we had a little baby went to an organization called um, um, Bay Area Attachment Parenting. <laughs> so we're sending my you know parents my you know my wife and my son and my little baby was going to this attachment you know place 
and um, but attachment has a very different meaning in psychology these days, where it's a healthy kind of sense of bonding and connection that's very important. And but to Bud- for Buddhists, attachment is all bad <laughs> in, in Buddhist English. And so, so that, that's what we have. Buddhism has that reputation, but it has, does not have the reputation for what we're supposed to do with these wholesome states. Um, and the you know to increase them, to strengthen them, to expand them, to develop them. Once they've arisen, make them have them grow. And we find el- and elsewhere in these ancient texts where it actually uses the word to to grow the wholesome states to the point that uh, they're abundant, that we thrive with them that uh, we're filled with them. They fully flow through us. The word for fulfill kind of actually means to fit, be filled out by them fully. And that's kind of dramatic. And then, you know, the Zen person in me, the way I was taught Zen, kind of reacts as well. Wait a minute. We're supposed to pri- be prioritizing certain states of mind. We should just be with the way things are and accept it for what it is. And the idea that you prioritize certain states of mind, you know, that was kind of like, you know, if you go to your Zen, I went to my Zen teacher and say, you know, wow, I just got really concentrated or really felt peaceful or filled with joy in my meditation. Uh, we, I'd be lucky if the teacher said something like, well, just one more thing to let go of. <laughs> and, uh, and then sometimes it was worse. And uh, in Zen, they have something called makko. I think it's makyo which is makyo um, or uh, uh, makko, you know? Delu- uh, anyway, it means delusion. It's just kind of, you know, that's just delusion. Don't bother with it. And so this dismissing of these beautiful, wholesome states um, makes sense in a certain, certain in, the, in, the, um, in the approach of Zen. I want to be respectful for it. It, it really makes sense in the grand totality of what Zen practice is about. It's very effective if you really understand the purpose and the background for it. But it also, when I, it, it lends someone like me to read these kinds of texts and be dismissive of it or not be interested. But uh, at the same time, when I did Vipassana practice, uh, when I do it, um, uh, these beautiful states arise. And they're allowed to arise, they're supposed to arise. Uh, sitting in meditation and allowing yourself to feel deeply calm, deeply content, deeply at home, being here right now in such a way that it's kind of an embodied at-homeness feeling that comes sometimes with delight and joy and happiness and uh, settledness. And the mind gets really still and unified and peaceful. The mind gets, the, I was really surprised to discover the upwelling in meditation for the first time of uh, very powerful states of loving kindness, of compassion, of equanimity that uh, arose. And so these things are supposed to be allowed and grow and develop. And, um, and some of the fault for not recognizing this early on is that uh, a lot of the early English translators um, uh, flattened the, la- the Pali language into English. They kind of made it kind of. I think they, maybe they were distrustful of a lot of emotionality and you know flowery kind of language or evocative language. And so some of the uh, more beautiful and inspiring discuss- uh, words like thriving 
uh, the word th- thriving became increase. <laughs> and um, and um, abundance became um, uh, like, you know, frequent or lots or, you know, something, you know, you know, has a very different emotional tone or feeling, the words you choose. And I think we kind of flattened it in, in these English translation. And, um, and so, but when you start getting this language of abundance and thriving, uh, you get a very different feeling for what fills us, what can happen, what's possible. It's also de- possible to hear these and compare oneself and say, well, these aren't happening to me. So then I'm bad or wrong or it's supposed to be different. It's also possible to think that, you know, well, I have to strive now to attain these and huff and puff and try to hold on to it. And so there's a lot of detrimental reactivity that can come into play when we hear about these things. But that's why these four right efforts are needed together. And we need to understand them together because uh, if we mix wrong effort with right effort, we end up with wrong effort. And so if you hear that you're supposed to develop uh, qualities of joy and happiness in practice, that that's supposed to come up, but we do it with, with uh, clinging and attachment, then it doesn't help, it doesn't work. So, um, so one of the examples I like to give for the kind of proper striving, if you were into that kind of thing, is strive to be relaxed. <laughs> and if you try to, if that's you strive to be relaxed, that's a protection because you can't strive with tension and relax at the same time. If the purpose is to relax, the striving has to be wholehearted, it has to be diligent, it has to be kind of continuous, really stay on it, on top of it. But in staying on top of it, it's you're saying you're getting more and more relaxed. You're discovering the places within where there's tension. Just relax. And in fact, elsewhere, the Buddha talks about the first stages of meditation has a lot to do with relaxing, uh, calming our reactivity. And the, in the kind of stages of meditation that he gives, it's not until there's been a fair amount of relaxation of reactivity that uh, we begin getting into the realm of maintaining, cultivating and maintaining and growing and uh, with these uh, wonderful positive states of mind that can arise. And, uh, and so we learn to relax the body, the Buddha said. The reactivity that's stored in our body, for someone who's new to meditation, this is one of the first things that's really useful to do. Really, really find a way to sit and meditate so the shoulders can relax, the belly can relax, the, the muscles of the face. Really work on sitting upright, or the equivalent for you, and it let, let things really unwind. Don't be in a hurry to jump over that stage of a practice. And then, uh, and then the second instruction is to do that for the mind, for the, the mental world. Whatever is reactive and tense in your mental world, that's important to calm, to make tranquil, to settle, to relax. And so this is a very important protective measure in this practice, 
is to remember how important it is to relax. So then we take this uh, instruction here, which says, uh, you should make effort, arouse energy, exert your mind, and strive to relax. <laughs> do it wholeheartedly. Really, give yourself to it. But, you know, don't, if you do it, give yourself to it wholeheartedly. Remember to do it in a, as a way of relaxing. And then at some point, with enough relaxation, enough being fully present here, and this is not an easy thing to come to, and many people find meditation phenomenally beneficial just because it gets, helps them relax 10% of their tension. And they're 10% more here and more wiser because of it. But at some point, when there's enough relaxation of our reactivity, the reactive world that we're caught in and living in, these beneficial states, the wholesome states, begin appearing on their own. They're not something we have to manufacture or require, but rather, there's kind of like, almost like the nature of who we are is waiting inside of us, our, our, our states of calm, peace, uh, generosity, uh, care, love, uh, equanimity, wisdom, joy, happiness, that are just kind of like in the, you know, uh, you know, just off stage, just waiting for a chance to come on stage when just those reactive uh, actors can just get off. <laughs> but you know, that re- uh, the reactive actors are there all the time, and so they never seem to, they think they have an endless en- encore. <laughs> and, um, but finally, when they settle away, and there's room on the stage of our mind, our heart, there's all the stuff that can arise. And what this teaching here means for me, of, you know, support the continuous, the maintaining of it, the strengthening it, the development of it, the abundance of it, has a lot to do with allowing it to do so, getting out of the way. And this is one of the things I learned from this way I was practicing, was how useful it was to get out of my own way and kind of make room for these things, make space for them, which comes from appreciating them. And it took a long time for me to appreciate these positive states of mind that can arise out of meditation, out of Buddhist practice. They arose for me, but I kind of shrugged them off or didn't pay any attention to them because of this Zen background where we weren't supposed to. And But eventually I learned, oh, you're, this is okay to appreciate these. It's okay to make room for them and value them because doing that is the very thing that supports them to grow more and more and more. If you don't appreciate them, they don't grow. If you get attached to them, they don't grow. If you tie them, if you connect them to your self-worth, they don't grow. Just let them be. Let them be there and support and grow and develop. Don't make them complicated. Get out of the way for them. Don't interfere with them. But then do the things that support them. And some of that that supports these is the wholeheartedly showing up and being present for what is. And when the wholesome states of mind begin showing themselves, maybe as small hints at first, to be wholeheartedly present for those and making room for them gives room for them to grow and develop. And, um, 
And then we come to a point in practice, some point, not an easy thing, but uh, it is kind of the North Star that we kind of know that's possible, is that we come to a point where the thriving, the sense of abundance, sense of thriving that is possible, uh, embodied thriving, embodied abundance, embodied sense of wholeness, of nourishment, seems to begin having a life of its own. It seems to well up and be present and support us in being present. And it creates a context, a background, a foundation for being present for all kinds of things, including our reactivity, including what's really difficult in this world, that, that is um, uh, such a powerful support to be supported by deep relaxation, by joy, by happiness, by a sense of calm, so we can address the difficulties of this life of ours is very different than meeting the difficulties of this life from that place of reactivity, from the place of unwholesomeness that many people are caught up in. So with all that, I want to read an ancient poem. And it's... um, What's here? I think it's written by a, a disciple of the Buddha from the ancient world, rather than by the Buddha. So, in a sense, what we're talking about today is uh, the distinction between, also between wise and unwise attention. So, unwise attention doesn't know what to pay attention to properly, and also pays attention in ways that maybe involve attachment or clinging or resistance or aversion. Um, so this poem begins with a sentence, From unwise attention, your thoughts eat you. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> None of you, of course. They're, they're, apparently the, the Pali word might literally mean uh, chew you up. <laughs> a little bit more than just, a little more dramatic than eating. So this ancient uh, language, text, you know, it's very poetic and powerful, the words that have been kind of flattened in English. And so sometimes, you know, even the negative ones are very kind of juicy. From unwise attention, your thoughts eat you. Giving up what is unwise, think wisely. Basing your thoughts on the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and your own virtue, you will no doubt obtain gladness, joy, and happiness. Then, with abundant gladness, you will make an end to suffering. So here you see a shift from language here from something unwholesome, unhelpful, unwise attention. We learn how to pay attention wisely and to think wisely so that our thoughts don't eat us up, don't you know, pull us into the whirlpool of preoccupation. And then basing ourselves on the values, the orientation in life that the Buddha Dharma Sangha represents, and virtue, your own ethics, um, you will no doubt obtain gladness, joy, and happiness. So here's the emphasis on these wholesome, healthy qualities of mind, of heart. 
And then here it talks about abundance, with abundant gladness. Imagine. This language of abundance is used sometimes, a kind of, in a way of talking about it, they talk about um, uh, inner wealth, that faith is inner wealth. Um, uh, 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 vigilance and kind of careful attention is an inner wealth. Loving kindness is an inner wealth. So the idea of becoming wealthy, abundant, like the spilling over, you have more than enough, you feel completely, you know, content and happy. And then you will make an end of suffering. Maybe your suffering won't come to an end until you've figured out a way to relax deeply, to allow some really beautiful qualities of heart to arise. And so you can really then, from that point of view, address the root of the suffering that you have in your life. So that was a little plug for right effort. Maybe trying to make up for 25 years ago (laughs) when I skipped it. (laughs) So thank you. And um, so we have a few minutes. If some of you would like to ask uh, questions or comments, then you're welcome to do that. And Martha over there. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. That was very provocative for me. Many things swirling around inside me. I want to add that in that place, as I've acknowledged over time, the wholesome thoughts, if you will, the positive states, the joy, the the higher vibration, if you will. I feel very much that I work with that idea of what nurtures it, what, how do I resource it, because we're also in our human being bodies. And um, my profession is a therapist, so as I were, was listening to you, it was difficult, it was unavoidable to not think about how we live out here externally, practically. What do we do? What choices do we make to feed those states of mind? And just the one thing I wanted to share that got me very excited was when you spoke about how do we grow those wholesome states? And what came to me was express it, create, service, love, love more here and here. And so thank you. You fed me deeply today. Great. Thank you. That's very nice. Yeah, I think uh, if there are these wholesome tendencies or qualities that are in us, uh, they grow by expressing them, especially if we express them wisely. You not just, uh, you know, inflict people with them. (coughs) But uh, the wise expression of it. And, uh, and the relational are so important because one of the most common, if someone, you didn't ask me directly, but if one of the, someone asked me, you know, how do you make these grow or these wholesome states? Uh, the most common answer the tradition gives is, um, has to do with how we live interrelationally with other people. They say you should be ethical, you practice your ethics, and generosity. 
ethics is all about how we live in relationship to other people and others, other things. And generosity is the same thing. It's the interrelational world that we're that is so important for all this. And, and uh, sometimes because it's a meditation tradition, we have, and we close our eyes in our tradition even, right? It just seems like it's so self-focused, internally focused. But, um, but a lot of this work also happens interrelationally and just ethics and generosity is the beginning of it. So someone else? Thank you for your comments and um, this session today. Uh, I wondered if um, uh, you have tried to teach um, or you have taught meditation to four to five year old uh, students to you know the and what your ex- I mean to uh, more higher ages maybe nine, ten, to eleven, twelve, yeah. thirteen, fourteen. <clears throat> I've been trying to teach like five minutes meditation when I have been teaching last few weeks and uh, just to see how they absorb being able to close their eyes and feel you know the generosity and uh, the wholesomeness of relationships yeah Um, I don't haven't had a lot of experience. A lot of I haven't had a lot of experience with four to five year olds, um, and uh, I think that for that age and for even older, uh, some of the ways of being that adults want to see them. Adults want to have kids uh, kind of be positively influenced by meditation, so that they can be different in some kind of way. Uh, but I think some of the ways we want them to be different or be changed or be supported or be guided or, I don't know, something, <clears throat> uh, there might be better ways in trying to get them to meditate. Um, there might be how, the, how parents conduct themselves slowly over the, you know, regularly becomes a model for how they learn to be present and be relaxed. If the parents are anxious, they learn that the world is a scary place. If they learn, if the parents are happy, they learn the world's a happy place to be. So how the parents are at that age is probably more important. Um, when my kids were that age, there was one, one, I have two sons, and one of them did a lot of meditation with, but that wasn't because, um, you know, I, you know, I thought it was, I don't know how to say it. The main reason for doing it is that um, uh, he, he was kind of a hyperactive kid, like, you know, not not kind of, <laughs> and um, and so uh, and the more tired he got, the more activated he would get, which wasn't healthy for him because then he couldn't sleep, and so getting him to sleep was a big issue. Like when he was a little baby, we could only get him to sleep if we carried him or drove him in the car, you know, for naps. And so I started doing guided meditations for him going to bed at night. And that would help him go to sleep. And, um, 
And so I did a lot of creative imagi- uh, ima- uh, visualizations or imaginations for him. Like imagine that he was a sea otter on its back on the ocean, on top, floating on top of the kelp, and the gentle waves are coming and lifting you up and down. And, and so your breath up and down of the waves. And he would lay there and imagine he was a sea otter or a bird. Or I did all these animals, you know, and it's like every evening was a different animal for a long time and that would so he had that and what, how deeply that went into him I don't know the other thing that we did with the kids who were that young is um, <clears throat> uh, uh, we had cookie parties and a cookie party was uh, a time where sometimes we did it because it was, it was with two kids at home uh, things were you know I didn't know that people literally bounced off the walls <laughs> I thought it was just a, just an expression, <laughs> and so there were times when it just like was you know not only bouncing off the walls they're going to bounce through the window soon so we 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 need something here so I said, let's have a cookie party and uh, and they knew what that meant so we would they would get involved in setting it up and we'd set up a kind of special kind of rug on the floor and and they get a little kind of flower or centerpiece, maybe a Buddha. And then we put Zafus, like we have here, sitting on around four of them for the four, or, you know, in the, each corner of a kind of a circle. And then we get cookies out and put them on a plate and maybe some milk for the kids. And then we would sit there. I would, my wife and I would sit in meditation posture and they would sit on their Zafus in the way that they do. And everything got calmed down. Everything settled and got peaceful. And there was no meditation, but there was a whole, the ambience, the tone, how the kids felt and what was going on for them. Maybe they, I don't know what was going on when they were activated, but when they, but they, you know, they, and then after they, we had this cookie party, they were so calm and contented and cozy. And it was such a, you know, it, you know whatever a parent wants a four-year-old to get from meditation, <laughs> we got from cookie, cookie parties. <laughs> So that's, that's a, I could say more, but that's enough for now. And, uh, and I think adults do well, maybe not cookie parties, but uh, now we call them tea ceremonies. <laughs> Says our, it's looking at our tea master. <laughs> so, um, okay, so thank you. So if some of thank you would you. like to meet outside now in the parking lot, we can take some folding chairs out and um, we can take the masks off there and have more discussion for a little while and be nice to hang out and uh, otherwise thank you